and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning into this episode today. I want to introduce you to Emma Schaefer, who courageously shares her story with us. She has armed herself with a toolbox full to the brim with imagination, creativity, and a dash of absolute rule-breaking fun, as you will hear throughout this conversation today. But Emma shares with us a story of resilience and strength. Having faced the challenges of her parents separating at a really young age, and then over the following years, she navigated various homes each presenting its own set of trials. She's just starting to make sense of her world and the impact that this has all had on her today. From the tender age of six, Emma's life took a very different turn, marked by experiences of neglect, family violence, and lack of support. She candidly shares her overwhelming feelings of loneliness and guilt and fear that often accompanies such circumstances. Imagine being a child knowing deep down that what is happening around you isn't right. Emma's story prompts us to reflect on the importance of finding a voice in the midst of adversity and the difficulty of being able to express what we can't find words for. As you know, I like to give a trigger warning for our episodes and today we discuss themes of family violence and neglect. If these topics are distressing for you, remember that help is available. You can reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or speak to a trusted person in your life. Through Emma's story, you will also experience her profound courage and resilience. Let's listen and learn from her experiences and how she weaved her way through these challenges and emerged even stronger, more vibrant and colourful than she ever dreamed possible. Let me introduce you to the woman herself. Hi, Emma. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this beautiful Sunday morning. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me on, on this glorious overcast Sunday morning. I think, Em, you are my first guest that I've ever given this amount of time to. So I saw Em yesterday, I think it was. Oh, no, it was the day before. And I was like, Em, why don't you come on the podcast this weekend? And you're like, ah, uh, okay. And we just booked it. So I think usually people get like at least a week to think about it or a couple of months. And you're this, you and I were both like, yep, let's just get it done. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> If we leave it too long, it might not happen. And I love to start everyone with asking what animal best describes you and what is it in particular about that animal? I have three kids and I was asking them, what animal do you think I would be? And they really did not help. (laughs) So I really gave it some thought and this one might be a bit different to other animals that people might describe themselves as, but I've come up with a spider monkey. The reason for that is because their thoughts and their memories are quite acute. I'm not sure that I can say that solely just for myself. However, they are social, they're cheeky, they're adventurous, 
They've got really big personalities, might often be seen as the life of the party, but I discovered something amazing, which was they love nothing more than hanging out with their own troops and a group of spider monkeys is called a troop. I am really comfortable with my own company, but I absolutely love that as spider monkeys consider their family as everything, I also can very much resonate with that. I learned something. Their genus name, which is Atelis, means imperfect. And that is because they have a lack of opposable thumbs. Oh, how good are they, I guess, at how comfortable they are with that imperfection. And I just think as humans, if we strive for perfection, what a, a horrible journey that could be. Like it, it could be something that you may never achieve and it could be disappointing. So I think imperfection also sums me up. Oh. And I think the spider monkey thing also came about as just being a little girl and my dad working at the zoo in the education department I would often spend many hours after school as a, well, preschool starting as a four-year-old and having the zoo as my back playground. So I spent hours looking at spider monkeys after hours and just totally immersed in their behaviour and their their cheeky ways. So, Is this out at Dubbo Zoo? This was Taronga Zoo in Sydney. Ah. So, yeah, I think it's resonated with me over the years, but spider monkeys, <laughs> they're pretty cool. Yeah, they are. They're one of my favourite monkeys, actually. As soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I always love to go and see them when I'm at the zoo. And so, and maybe, maybe a really nice place to start is your childhood. Like, do you want to tell us a little bit about young Emma? Yeah, certainly. So when I was about two, my, my parents separated and tried really hard to, to make it work and keep together. But by the age of four, things really weren't going so great. And I had that lovely choice, which at the time people often thought, well, it's a big thing for a kid to make a choice about who they want to live with. But I felt lucky actually that I was able to be given a choice and I actually chose to stay with my dad. My mum had met somebody else and, and moved on and I, and I thought, well, I'm going to be here with dad and we'll look after each other. And I had the most amazing childhood growing up right down on Bradley's head Taronga Zoo was my backyard and spending time exploring these spaces and starting school and getting on the back of my dad's push bike to be delivered to my my earlier kindergarten classes. And it was just such a fabulous, like really fulfilling time in my life where I think it was just, I don't know, I think it was just such a, a fab experience that not everybody gets that opportunity to explore that sort of world at such a young age. And Dad and I just had this best life, you know, the opera house across the harbour. We lived right down on the water, the National Park, Bradley's Head was my my back garden. So I was quite a little free spirit back then and just really immersed myself in everything that was around me and thoroughly, thoroughly look back on those years as as what an experience. And they still stick with me even today. When you think about how much we pay to go to the zoo, to think that that is your backyard, like that's your everyday, that's your normal, like when you said the word free spirit, that is absolutely how I would describe you. If someone said to me, you know, have you met Em and what would you say about her? I'd be like, free spirit, shows all colours, like just expressive and fun-loving and kind of has this energy around you that kind of draws people into you because it's a very special energy, you know. It's a, I don't know, it's like 
I can imagine being in a zoo and seeing all these animals and being lit up. That's how I picture you when you walk in the world. Yes. Oh, thank you. And that really, that is me. That is me. I was very much a person that would, back in the day, we were allowed to bring a tiger cub home for the weekend and, and look what? after it. And <laughs> No way! No, yeah. And, and it was just so fantastic, you know, going into the orangutans and being really scared but jumping on Dad's shoulders only to find that a baby orangutan would be crawling along the beams at the top and just having a little pinch of my hair. But it was so playful, so wonderful and sixth birthday party, feeding the seals with a few mates behind the scenes. And yeah, it was very much that. It was just so much love, so much experience, so much, so much of just a, a joy that that maybe at that time I took for granted, but didn't realize. I just thought that was my everyday, like other people probably do the same. But <laughs> no, they definitely don't, Em. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Took me a while to work that one out. <laughs> I'm just picturing you with the orangutans. Like, that's so cool. I, I love animals. So I'm just sitting here going, oh, my God, I want to go to the back. I want to be behind the scenes at the zoo. Now, as an adult, I want to go behind the scenes. Like, they're just such such unique animals that we don't get to hang out with in their natural habitats very often. So, yeah, that's Absolutely. I can totally see how you look back on that with such fond memories. No, I, and I most certainly, certainly do. Absolutely great times that I will never forget. It's important that we paint that picture because that wasn't your whole childhood, right? No, no. So things did change. That was my childhood from about three to about six. And and then, you know, I sort of got into maybe about to start year two at school and I thought, well, hang on, what about my mum? Maybe I should go and spend some time living with her and dad's happy. He's still doing his thing at the zoo and and he, he was very much a man that was really all about where I needed to be at the time and, and respected any change that I felt that I needed to make and supported me in every way possible. So at the age of seven, I moved to Newcastle and started living with my mum and she had a partner and a new little baby, same mum, different dads. And I spent a couple of years in Newcastle living living with her there and it was not quite the same experience that I'd had prior. There was moments of sort of that tumultuous time of they had a family that was I was sort of walking into, so there was moments of members of that family just not being able to cope with me as the fourth person in the wheel, I guess, so there was a bit of angst there and lack of support and I think just genuine parent life where they you know should be nurturing you and offering you what you need I think at quite a young age so there was unfortunately domestic violence that appeared in that space from certain family members and and it was a little bit of a shock to my system but I think when you're as young as seven there's not that ability to be able to process these things emotionally so I started to feel guilt which I'd not felt before and a sadness and a loneliness and an isolation and who can I get to help because I think that's what needs to happen but I was afraid to to know where to go for that because I didn't have the capacity as a little person to have a solution for those situations when they arose. It wasn't all the time but it was certainly a factor that occurred in that space. At the time. When you reflect back on it, Em, what are the parts that come up for you? 
I guess the parts that come up for me was it was such a, a foreign environment compared to where I had come from and it really didn't sit right and I felt the need to protect the person that was also experiencing that within my family and it was long chats with my dad I wanted to be really open and honest and it then led to I guess a positive I through his support got got out of that space enabled to start my life a little bit all over again, not necessarily, but just moving out of an environment that I knew at such a young age just was was not the right space for me to be. You knew internally that it wasn't right, but knowing and speaking up can be two very different things. Did you find that? Absolutely. Speaking up and and letting somebody know was really a hard thing to do for a little person because I think you didn't want to be causing any more trouble than there already was and you certainly didn't want to be responsible for that and the repercussions that that could have had. So I sort of in some ways discreetly weaved my way out of that situation in a way that I didn't want to cause any angst with the adults in the world in my life at that time. What did your hardest days look like in those years? My hardest days in those years were were built with a lot of fear, fear of the smallest things like getting things wrong with my homework, uh, in particular my maths. And I still think to this day it's why I've never chosen a career with numbers because that wasn't just a normal, oh, we need to help you here and, and get better with this. It was It was a physical repercussions should I not be getting something the first or second or third time over and I knew in my heart as a seven-year-old that this is not how somebody should be dealing with that situation so my days were fear I didn't know what anxiety was at seven looking back now I, I can maybe know that I probably would have felt those things but at the time it was it really was fear it was fear it was a genuine finishing school for the day and coming home not knowing what that night might look like and trying to protect the person that loved me also from the violence that occurred and I I didn't know how to step in to do that as much as I wanted to feel like I was helping but it was a really tough situation to to be a part of. I think I could also put it down to the fact that there was another child in the house which once that child came along, the the father of that particular child, it was, you know, like uh, I guess a situation where now that that child's been born, this is their their family and, and just feeling like I was living on the periphery of all of that, just not, not having that sense of belonging, I guess. And the sense of safety, you know, those two fundamental things that we look for as a human, the sense of belonging, the sense of safety. And at such a young age, knowing something's wrong, but not knowing how to navigate it or what to do with it or, you know, two things that pop into my mind is, did anyone else notice? Did any teachers, did any neighbours, family, friends? No. And people didn't notice. I didn't speak up to people that were around. I was very frightened to do that. And I think from a maternal perspective, I had my mum who really felt ashamed of what was happening and therefore wanted to keep that as a 
something that was going on that was close to home. It's not something that you go and tell the world because these things aren't meant to happen and in some ways it was protecting us because you didn't want to put it out there on show and draw attention from people because it doesn't make us look good. Maybe perhaps it's slightly dysfunctional. And so I sort of grew up, I guess, in those years. I was I was really only living there from seven to nine. By the age of nine, it was too difficult to stay. And thankfully, I guess my own father changed careers and, and moved and there was a little carrot dangling in front of my face that was very much like, why don't you come with me and, and we'll get away from all of this and you know, get back to living life as to how it should be. In saying that, I felt so hard and, well, for my mum being also caught in the web of still what was going on within that house and I wanted to save her from all of that but I just didn't have the capacity as a young child to do that in that space. I felt quite ashamed and to me as a little girl in year two, it was not something that I ever spoke with with friends at that time because I didn't think that that was happening in their world. My teachers did not know. My mother was very much a person that would be like, you know, these things you don't go and talk to people about. It, it's just a shame that it happened but, it, it you know, he he was just in a bad way and, and that's why these things happened. So there was often an excuse and at the time I, I just thought, well, okay, that's just how it's meant to be. So I felt quite as if I was very much on a journey on my own. I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't have the capacity to be able to speak up at that age. And you also mentioned that it didn't happen every day. And this is such a misconception out there around violence in homes, in family homes, is that I think often people have this idea that it happens every day and it's really consistent and it can be for some, but for many, many, it's actually not. It's actually this like cycle of like build, explode, come back around, remorse, go again, you know? And I totally agree with what you're saying. I think it's this this circle of you're sort of on a hamster wheel, like it goes along and it can be really great. And I think for people on the outside world, they they look into your life and think, wow, like you guys are a really happy little family. But absolutely, it did not have an occurrence on a daily basis. But it could be those moments, even when my mother and I would have least expected it, where it could be a Saturday evening after a sporting match that, you know, my stepfather would come home and next thing there'd be a plate thrown at us from across the room because the dinner wasn't warm enough. And I often found myself like being as close as I could to my mother because hopefully he wouldn't do anything if I was nearby, but that also subsided. So it was a, I wouldn't say funny because it wasn't funny, but a, a very complicated situation where it, it was few and far between. And you just didn't know when that explosion was going to reach its head. And that really describes that walking on eggshells piece that often people talk about as an experience they remember in their souls. It was that tiptoeing around trying to prevent, prevent anything from causing a scene, creating drama. You know, it's like, it's almost like the other people in the family that aren't actually the abusers take control that it's their responsibility to make sure that nothing happens. That's exactly right. Like just keeping the peace and you know having a low profile and and not doing anything that could escalate to to somebody being quite unhappy with you. So it was a 
an existence for for a young girl for me at the time that I was really taking on more than I felt that I probably had to at that age rather than than enjoying all the moments in life which I still did but there was this thing in the background that that kept me on my toes as to just treading carefully. What did life look like for you once you started speaking up to your dad? My life looked very different. My dad growing up has always been absolutely supportive and when I spoke up with my dad we had a a great conversation because he was at that time living on um, well in the snowy mountains and I was in Newcastle so we had a lot of long drives together in school holidays where these conversations took place and he said it does not have to be like this if you are not happy I think that we need to make a change for you because there's a whole life out there to be lived and he was one of those great parents in the respect that he gave up the job where he was working and there was a, a new school opening up on the south coast and he said, how about I put in for that job? And and he sort of presented me with this opportunity of we can live near the water and, oh, we could buy a block of land and, and have all these animals and, uh, you know, just, just break out of, of this situation that you're in because there is so much more that life has to offer. However, on the other side, he also said, but I do understand, like, your your mum is your mum and should you feel the need to stay, but I just think at this point in life it's a little bit unsafe. So I was left to make that decision, which I really respect. I have had conversations in the past with people of my own age at the time thinking that was it was maybe a bit fair for a parent to put that onus on a child to make a decision, but I feel I have no regrets about that and Hence, from the age of nine, I followed my dad and off to the south coast we went, although still worried about what I was leaving behind because I wanted to protect my mum. And Em, I just want to highlight there when you said that you got given the choice, I think, yes, absolutely, onlookers might be like, that's a tough decision for a little girl, but what it actually also does is empower you. I mean, maybe the conversation might have looked different if you said, no, I'm going to stay. There might have been another conversation that might have been a little bit more like, hey, by the way, let's actually get you out. But giving that space and that allowing someone to make their own decisions is really important. Safety comes first, but then very close next to it is how do we help people make their own decisions in this environment and this space that they're in? Yes. And I feel really thankful for being given that autonomy from such a young age to be able to make those choices. Because I know in some families, it's very much well, 50% 50% of the time is spent with your mother and the other 50% is with me. And, 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 I mean, really it was quite amicable between my own parents because there was never any domestic violence or anything like that between them. So just fortunate enough that I did have that, that opportunity to be able to make the big decisions and also given the permission that should have my mind changed my dad always said, no matter what choice you make, like we both still love you. It's, it's, it's your call. And I really loved that. <laughs> what did it look like for the following years? It was great. My first experience moving in with dad at nine was different from when I left him at six. So we had no accommodation at the very beginning. So we were living in a caravan park until we found some housing and and school had started. So the very first experience I had was my father and fellow staff going to a, a new teacher's 
party which was held on a sandbar out in the middle of the ocean <laughs> and of course the tide came in and and my dad didn't make it home and here I am I'm nine I'm like where's my dad so that was really tough I remember walking around this caravan park that we'd only been living in for a couple of days and that was a tough one and there was a few and I love my dad dearly but that was I guess the beginning of of noticing patterns that he had, which was being quite a drinker. So love my dad, but there was some hard things going on from nine and onwards because Friday nights would be, you know, a special country club back then in the day. And I would often sit outside because at home, waiting, 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 but feeling unsafe, not because there was anybody bad. It was more just that feeling of, well, I feel safer outside because if somebody comes to get me, whoever that somebody is, if I'm outside, people can hear me. So I went through feeling like I'd come from not such a great spot, but then in a different way, experiencing this whole new world of feeling very much alone, making some wonderful friends, lovely little primary school, but almost becoming more of a grown-up person well and truly before my time. And I didn't notice it perhaps then, but as the years went on, I thought, you know, wow, I'm taking on a role in some ways that I don't think I should have to do at this age. And that was a tough one. Did anyone notice through those years, you know, like did anyone see you sitting outside? Did anyone ask any questions? It always blows my mind, like, Do we notice these children and choose not to say anything or do all of us walk through society not noticing, you know, like? And it's a great question. I I think physically nobody knew that I'd be hiding in the shrubs in my garden because I felt safe there compared to being inside. However, there were some wonderful people on the staff at the new school where my dad obtained this job that actually took me on weekends and Monday nights. So, and they were very much a a family. So I got to learn what a family looked like because to me, it was always just dad and I. So over the years, and dad was fabulous in the respect that it was at a time, I guess, 12, 13, 14, like you're growing up, you're becoming a woman. and, And dad had set up, I guess, people in place to help me navigate those years, which, you know, I totally respect him for that. And I know that none of us are perfect, but I that element for, for me with him was really great. So I, I had a, a lovely family that I would frequent and I got my dose of sitting up at a table to eat our dinners and, and to drive in a car because <laughs> Dad and I didn't have a car. We walked everywhere and I guess materials weren't so important to him it was a really interesting time and there were the people but to this day don't think that those people knew exactly what it was like to be hiding in the bushes and to to have many conversations with somebody that's intoxicated and they're the sole parent that you're living with and and I didn't want to vocalize that to the people because there was a bit of shame there too I think on my part like it was embarrassing or maybe not what I considered to be the norm. I'd imagine, Em, that as a young child, having made the decision to move from one environment into another, that also complicates the situation, you know? Like, well, do I go back there? Is that where I need to be? Because that's not safe. And if I'm here, 
well, these are my options that are in front of me. It's not like you would know as a young child that there might be other options out there. And what are they? As a young child, what are they? Foster care? Go live with another family member? Like, you know, we don't know that as young children. No. And and I think you're spot on. And I, I also feel that there was the distance. So the family, as in my mother and grandparents and things like that, they were in the Hunter region and that was so far away from where we were living that there was no option family-wise to have somebody else to go to and I didn't want to go back to where I had come from and it was sort of like I better just stick with the devil I have now because, yes, it's better in so many ways. And my dad, look, is a wonderful, wonderful man but I think the earlier days where we lived together, he was so spot on and so there but I think you know, looking at his life maybe at that point in his 40s, you know, being a single father, maybe, I, you know, not making excuses, but it was certainly probably tough for him also. So those options of, yeah, is it foster care? But he was a, he was a parent that was above me needing to do that because he still supported lots of my needs that I needed at the time and he was present. So, so yeah, that wasn't an option and nor was going back to the Hunter region, but I felt like I was living on another planet in terms of distance. And I'll add to that because it was those years, it was the the 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that not once, not even once during that part of my life did my mum come to visit. So the school assemblies, the, the playing hockey, the swimming clubs, the things that you do, I had never, ever had her ever to this day. And it's only now that I'm beginning to realise, wow, you you did not do that. You weren't there. And then for me, there was a sense of feeling sorry for her because I've still got her pinned in that spot where I left her, which might have made it hard for her to come all of those hours to visit me. And, And then, of course, that need of she had to work and earn the money and times are tough and it was all that sort of thing. So I I spent lots of time on my own. Yes, I had friends, we had sleepovers and all of those things, but it was me prematurely growing up and being the woman in my dad's life. I didn't want to be that little girl that would hang the bra on the clothesline as I was 14 because how embarrassing. Like I don't want dad to see that. So being the the, the little girl in his life, I, I just found myself prematurely like, you know, I was helping, helping mow the lawn, do all my own washing, do those things, which was great skills to learn. But I do feel that there was childhood also being missed because I fulfilled the role of of just being more grown up before I needed to be, I guess. And when you think about it now, what words, statements, phrases, stories did you integrate into your mind as a result of all those experiences at that young age? There were struggles. Just trying to normalise it because I think at that age, you know, those early teenage years living on a small south coastal town, you know, you've got other people within their family situation, doing all the family things. I guess it affected just my everyday thoughts of of who I am and where am I going with all of this. I'm, I'm prematurely doing the things that I don't think that I should do. I think my dad's drinking became quite normalised for me at that age too. So it was very common to spend some of my best conversations with him, but now looking back like a, an intoxicated 
person. But then sober, it wasn't, conversations weren't as interesting. And I'm probably really not answering this to the best of what I could. No, but I think these are the memories that come up for you as I ask that question. And I guess I'm wondering, Emily, well, you know, were there were there sentences that you told yourself as a child that's like, I got to do this alone or it's up to me or no one's going to be here for me or, you know, I'm not good enough? I think there was a definite I'm not good enough. I'm not like the other girls that that I'm spending my days with. I am almost there's there's shame like having girls come and have sleepovers at my house was sort of almost embarrassing because you know we lived in a house that came furnished so it, it unlike my mother's place who was very material about her surroundings like we just had the bare basics and in some instances we would move and and end up you know sitting on cardboard boxes to have our dinner and I didn't want people to come around I didn't want those social gatherings with friends because it didn't look like what their places looked like and I didn't ever really feel sorry for myself it was more of just a it's just things are different for me in this space growing up do you notice that shame coming up as an adult yes how does it show up in your world as an adult so I think and it's really interesting but I think there is that imposter thing that has stuck with me for some time about you know I'll never be good enough to do this and and, you know, I, I can't do that because I'm I, like somebody else can do that that's much better than me. I mean, that even hit me with when I got married. Like, oh, somebody else deserves to be the wife. I don't want the day all about me. Like, let's <laughs> make these situations different. I don't want to be in that spotlight as much as I could be the life of a party and I can talk until I you know, turn purple. But, but there is very much another little place that sits within me that just likes to fly under the radar and be probably a bit more of a recluse with how I go about certain things, I guess. And listening to your story, Em, I can hear that there's a part of you as a child that needed to show up in the world and act and seem normal. People would notice and ask questions. So how do you present to the world like everything's okay and this other part of you that wants to withdraw and hide from people because it's not safe to be out, it's not safe, you know, hiding in the bushes, trying to find your way through how to clean up, how to wash your own clothes, where, you know, all of those things. So there's this real, as I'm listening to you talk, these two strong versions in a way yeah and and it's really only now like in my 40s that I'm beginning to work out well how do I deal with that because that is how I grew up it was it was almost like having a little bit of a facade just for self-protection where I would be yeah no life's really good and yeah we're walking 4ks into town to do the groceries and I'll spend my weekend cleaning and (laughs) doing those things in order to protect I think how it really was and I think too because my parents are so different I have elements of both of them within me so I guess from my mother's perspective everything had to look really perfect on the outside she was all about and still is very much of what other people think so I mean there were moments mind you when I would visit her during the holidays from the south coast and I would have to lie and pretend that I'm at a boarding school because that is the story that she needed to tell in her social circles it couldn't be that I was living with my dad and that she hasn't ever visited it was so there was angst around all of that as well and that whether you are an adult or a small little person or a teenager 
it sticks with me now and it's only now that I am beginning to start to realise like my coping mechanisms and it didn't sit with me to lie. It didn't sit with me to make up the stories because I think once you get started, geez, you have to remember all of that and and remember it for the next time. And I'm not good with that sort of a thing. So so I had I had one parent that was the absolute opposite. I was gonna say you would have had to have uh, a story for here. Yes. And a story for over there. Yes. You know, and they're almost chalk and cheese. Yes. Like one you're you're supposedly at a boarding school and life is great and you know nothing's out of place and then the other one it's like we're on cardboard boxes and I might be at home on my own and they're contrasted in the experience and how do you hold up you know the words that came up were covering things up how do you know what's truth and how do you learn to trust and that's it how do you learn to trust because it's incredibly hard when it's coming sometimes too from your own parents who you think should be the people in your world that you can be the most open and honest with but yet there's the facade to keep up with and and being those two different people and trying to work out well actually who really am I in all of this because I'm somebody over here and I'm somebody over there and that became really I think tricky and I don't think I realized that at the time though I think I just just got through. I don't know how I got through, but I got through. I was determined. That's part of who I am as well is just, I'm not going to fall in a heap here. It's just what I know. And I'm going to make it work one way or another. And I'll go through the motions and do the years and do the time. But I, I hope one day I can make sense of it all because at the time it didn't really make sense to me. Purpose and hope and clarity are the key to a fulfilling experience of life. Without them, being resilient when times are tough is really hard. It feels like stumbling in the dark without a clear direction. It feels like not knowing where to start with self-care. For you, it might feel like waking up with anxiety every day in your life or feel like you're on your elbows and knees, head in your hands overwhelmed, but it doesn't have to feel like that. Imagine knowing how to tackle life's challenges, whether big or small. Imagine knowing how to identify early warning signs of anxiety and take the necessary steps for self-support. Imagine knowing how to move forwards with purpose and clarity in your life. This is all possible. You can get access and apply the skills to be 100% more confident and more resilient in yourself in just six weeks. See, we ran this course a little while back with an overwhelming positive response. So we've taken the best bits and put it all together into a six-week go-at-your-own-pace surviving to thriving resilience course. Start today and over the next six weeks, we'll dive into the essential tools, strategies, and resilient mindset required to construct a stronger, more resilient you. The beauty of all of that is that you can navigate this journey at your own rhythm and on your own schedule. Every week, you'll be provided with a video module, a comprehensive workbook, equipping you with the necessary tools and guidance to embark on the path towards ultimate resilience. You'll walk away with confidence, with clarity, with a toolbox of skills and resources to use for the rest of your life. It is time to invest in your future. It is time to invest in yourself. 
All you need to do is click on the link in the show notes and feel 100% more confident and resilient in just six weeks. Did you end up turning to alcohol, drugs, street life? Like, you know, listening to your story, I can imagine as a teenager that some of that self-destructive behaviour would have displayed itself. Absolutely. So drinking was a huge thing. Sneaking that little, you know, bottle that was in the fridge because there were so many of them, I can go and try that. Just seeing if they can take me to a place where I'm not consumed by this world that's going on around me. I have to add just here (laughs) that for the first time ever this year, I have given up alcohol. It's the first time ever because I think that if I kept going, I think I'm going to be one of those people that I won't know it until it's all a bit too late. But yes, drinking, drinking, drinking. It was so normalised and so acceptable in my growing up phase that it was just something that I have done because it gives you that little buzz, it takes you away from the situation and it's a little bit of escapism. I didn't hit the point of running away. However, the alcohol really gave me what I felt that I needed at that time to remove myself. Firstly, Emma, congratulations on the alcohol because that's huge, right? If it's a, if it's something you've lived with and breathed your whole life, to make a decision that you're going to try something new, try on a different shirt, try on what life is like without alcohol. As you've said a few times throughout this, who were you? You know, that question came up for you as a child, like, who am I? And if you've had this alcohol that surrounded your world, it's like, well, who am I without that? Because it's just been a part of who I am. So there's a lot of unpacking and a lot of kind of getting bare and getting naked in that space and kind of asking the really tough, challenging questions behind that. Absolutely. Because to me, I went through many years really is I'm nobody without the alcohol. I need that in my space. And I... I know how to have a good time and that's the alcohol thing helped me through it. So I think it's really only facing it front on just ever so recently because there was always that element of me is I want to create, I guess, the life for my myself and my children that I don't feel that I had. So I think to, look, I've got a 12-year-old daughter so she's seen alcohol and me probably more than her younger siblings and I just I don't know what it was like some kind of epiphany really that might have just spoken to me and gone you know what you can do this you need to be present don't be that person that your parent was for you be all those things that you didn't have and I'm creating that and but more now ever than ever I guess this year because I'm actually sober doing this and I love nothing more than my kids saying to me this year so far oh mum like remember last night when normally I would have an absolute fear about that beginning of a sentence because more than likely I probably wouldn't remember what happened last night and when but it could be as simple as when David Attenborough was talking about those Galapagos the islands over there and and normally I'd be like ah yes 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 and pretending that I can remember but now I have this clear mind and I am creating my toolbox with all the things that I need to just be present and create a life for my kids. I'm so freaking proud of you, Em, because having a lifetime like you've described on this episode, you know, just that 
internal dialogue, the internal feelings, that internal world that gets created as a child when things are unsafe, when things are challenging and when you do experience that kind of trauma, you're often decades and decades later that you see it unfolding in your life and you're like, when did I get here or how did I get here or or you start to track back and go, actually, that's all coming way back from this tiny little person that's just asking to be noticed or to be heard or to be seen or to be loved to have worth in this world and it's like wow look at look at what has kind of unfolded in my life as a result of that and it's not using that as an excuse or blaming because we are absolutely responsible for our own actions and thoughts and behaviors but we often don't even realize it because we're just we're just doing hey we're just absolutely. we're just doing the best we can <laughs> with what we have and what we know and <laughs> just living in that moment and scraping by sometimes but absolutely it's certainly a journey, isn't it? Oh, such a journey. <laughs> I love that word and I, I have very strong non-happy words about that word. Like I, when I see the word journey, I'm like, I don't know if I love you or I hate you. I'm like, with you. I, just... I, I think it's a love-hate thing actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck the journey. No. <laughs> yep. Fuck the journey. <laughs> I want to get off this ride. I mean, if we could stop the ride and hop back on, like if we could just take a little break and just be observant for a little while, it would be nice. That's right. And I think it is that thing. I think it's it's coming to that self-realisation where you, you can actually hop off the ride if you are in a space. And not everybody is always in that space. And, look, it's taken me until my bloody 40s to get into the space to realise because there is a little bit more to my story, but I am now an adult. It's taken me until I'm, in fact, it's, I'm, I'm 46 today. Totally forgot it was my birthday today. 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 <laughs> today. Today. <laughs> today. <laughs> totally didn't what? even realise, but. <laughs> Happy bloody birthday. I cannot believe you're recording this podcast on your birthday. Oh, well, I forgot. <laughs> I think you get to an age where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but. I think, yeah, as an adult now, I'm 40, I still think I'm 17, but I am 46 and I can now hop off the ride. I'm allowed to make the choice. I am not one of those people anymore that have to sit and go, oh, when I'm old enough, I might be able to do this. I am here and I am making the, the decisions and some of them are bloody tough. But I think it's for the people out there that aren't sure about, you know, when a decision is the right one, I guess that's up to them. But no that you can, like you can, you don't have to keep going on that hamster wheel or that roller coaster if it's not for you. And I remember someone saying to me only like two years ago, like, Alge, you can put down the boxing gloves and step out of the ring. And I was like, what? I can? Like, I hadn't realized that I'd had them on and that I was still in the ring. Like I actually, just that phrasing for me was like, oh my God, I actually still have my boxing gloves on and I'm absolutely still in the fight. And yes. I hadn't realised that I could actually step out of the ring. I actually don't <laughs> need my boxing gloves anymore, but I carry them very close to me just in case. <laughs> I'm with you, mine aren't far, but I've realised that, yeah, they don't have to be strapped on. I can take the deep breath and I can make the choices to actually just retire them for now. Like it's a really, really wonderful feeling to have. That doesn't mean that life doesn't have its ups and downs still, but a lot of work that I've done on myself just in the past, well, what, 2020, that it's, it's still fresh, but, yeah, I, I can I can get by without the gloves. I can get by without feeling like I need to do the round with Muhammad Ali and I can face what I'm facing without all of those things to get me get me by. 
even when it's hard. As you said, it's like adversity still comes knocking, life we still live. There's good days, great days, shit days, hard days, all of the above. <laughs> Just because you make a decision to step up to the plate in that space doesn't make life easy. No. You know, sometimes it gets harder before it gets easier. But Em, you did say there, and I, I don't want to skip over it because you just mentioned there that wasn't the end of your story. And I thought you know, it is. this is a beautiful platform where we do get to share our stories. So is there part of your story that we haven't opened up yet? Yeah. And so I guess, you know, finishing living with my dad, I, I moved back to Newcastle. So this time, instead of being seven to nine, I was 17 to 19 living back with my mum, who at this point had a, a different partner. And I'd enrolled in a double degree of fine arts and education and thought it was going to be the best time of my life and in many ways it was uni I absolutely loved and I, I still think to this day if I could spend my my whole life being a professional student I would because it's just <laughs> I'm with you a cool spot to be and again we had a partner that also played out with the domestic violence and to a point where I got police involved because I was old enough I was not quite 18 as an adult but at 17 I wasn't prepared for this and I wasn't going to see it happen. So I involved the police, which to my mother's disgust was absolutely shameful. It makes us look like we are a family that we're not and she had every excuse in the book for this man because, look, he'd had a bit to drink and we'd been to a, a university third-year exhibition, which is what I was aspiring to be a part of. Oh, we were accused of all sorts of things and the pizza was still warm when he arrived home from the Christmas party that he'd been at, so therefore it was on for young and old. And I guess being a bit older this time I stepped in because I don't want to see somebody treating my mum the way they did and, of course, I probably came off second best. So, yeah, I was berated for involving the police in that matter and the following morning after he'd had his 12 hours of arrest and all the rest of it I had only just got my peas and and I had never really driven outside of you know just a close vicinity of where we lived and I asked my mother and her partner to just just get the cars out of the driveway because I'd been parked in and I'm I'm out and she said oh, but you, you can't barely drive. Like, where are you going? I said, it doesn't really matter, but I'm not staying here because there is something within me that I can now say that I am never, ever going to be part of this. Like, it doesn't sit with me. So I <laughs> I jumped in my little little car that was, you know, a couple of hundred dollars that I'd saved up for at the time and I managed to get myself as far as Sydney, which is where Dad was living. And it's funny, we ended up, Dad was living back in the house near the zoo where Mum, Dad and I had lived all those many moons ago. So here I am and I got myself to Sydney and, of course, my father was at a cricket match. So mobile phones weren't really a thing back then, but he's come home to find me in the house and totally like too many beers at the cricket and is, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I told him what I'd just been through and I, I had the bruises, I had the things to show and he was disgusted. And the worst part was in all of that, my mum had the excuses that, you know, it's just the end of the year, the stress for her partner and, you know, he was a bit drunk and he didn't mean to and he's bought her flowers, which makes everything better. And anyway, it, look, I just decided that I will come back to uni at the in the new year because it was November at this point and I will move out and not be 
in that same environment. But of course, you know, you went through the living away from home allowance, which I was receiving. But because I'd spent time with my father, who apparently was a a high income earner, I was no longer being able to be supported by Centrelink. So I I went in and had a meeting with a social worker. I had police records from the 29th. It's funny how you remember the dates of November from the prior year. And I said, look, this is what happened and I cannot live under that roof in order to continue my studies. And I got told that unless I find myself a, a sugar daddy, well, then perhaps it's just an opportunity for me to quit university. So. What? From the social worker. From the social worker. And Keeping in mind, I'd already actually physically moved out, so I was living with a girl studying nursing. She also went to a social worker but saw a different one to me and her reasons for not being able to live at home were little things like, which, you know, all all relative, I guess, but, you know, my younger brother and I argue about who's doing the washing up and he's not at uni yet so my work's more important than his and it's just creating conflict within our house and she gets this allowance to live away from home. I obviously got the reception I got. So I went off to the ombudsman and I went to the university counsellor and I went through all the avenues that I could do to make that change. And it consumed actually my lectures that I was supposed to be attending at the time. And and the best thing that could have happened to me was, well, firstly, social worker didn't have a job anymore because apparently I was not the only student that he had spoken to where he had used the terms sugar daddy and quitting university. So thank goodness there had been. I'm so glad my blood is still boiling. I'm like, give me his name. (laughs) I'm like, woo. Yeah, mine was like, I am not going to stop here. I am on a mission and I am not going to be told that. So half the year was sort of wasted in me just trying to fight for the survival to to stay at uni and it was at a time in Newcastle where the BHP was finishing up and there was a lot of people out of work so even to find a little checkout style job I, I couldn't even get one of those to support myself and the best news came from my dad and he said Emma like just leave there's other avenues there's other universities right now you don't need to be there in that space come home And I thought, thank you. That is all I probably needed to hear. So it it led me on to many other things. So I went to Sydney, living back with dad. It was a funny household at this point because it was us sharing the house that I initially remembered my parents being in where the, the split up kind of happened, which I wasn't emotional or angry about by any means. But it became a bit of a halfway house for a lot of men that would frequent the space. We shared the, the house with this gay guy that dad had known for years and years and years and and he had quite some unsavoury characters. So here I am now at 19, 18, 19, and I've got, you know, people I didn't even know that were in and out of this space. It wasn't always the best space. There was drug use happening there. There was so many drinking moments happening there and also I think the unsavoury characters that thought, oh, nice young girl, and tried to to do some things, which, again, I just thought, I don't need this shit. I'm just constantly feeling like I'm running from one space to another. So, look, I, I ended up moving out, finding a little place on my own, and I worked my guts out and... I ended up doing graphic design part-time. I thought maybe maybe this whole teacher art thing, I'm 
18. I don't want to do a uni degree and all of a sudden I'm 20 and I'm teaching 17-year-olds how to how to do art at school. So maybe graphic design's where it could go for me. And I did. I, I put myself through five years it was, part-time, had a day job, all fantastic. I lived alone. I got the boyfriends. I moved. I moved around quite a lot, but it was it was a good time. Drinking was always there, which, you know, looking back, I don't know, it was just, I guess, where I was as well at that point. And I worked in the graphic design industry for one year and I realised that this is just not for me. I just, I don't know, I'm sitting at a computer and I'm churning out these designs for things like corporate bank jobs or pharmaceutical brochures and I, I don't know, it just didn't sit with where I wanted to be creatively. And I, I remember, and Dad and I, you know, would speak and would see each other and do all those things, but I'd say to him, like, you know, I don't know what to do. And he's like, look, if, if a career is a job is where you spend so much of your time. And he said, so I just feel that if that's where you don't want to be, don't think that that's what you've got to be doing for the rest of your life. And again, it was it was just ruminated with me with the words that he said from Newcastle Uni days where just come come away from it, like step aside. Even right back to when you were a young girl where he said it doesn't have to be like that. That's exactly right. You know, that's a pretty constant message that he's given you. It's almost like there's this little life lesson in that in that, you know, you can change your environment and you can change the path of life that you're on. It's actually up to you in this moment. You can choose to stay or choose to leave. Yes, he was very much a promoter of that, which I am just so thankful for. And I remember being on a bus and coming over the Anzac Bridge and I, I thought I'll phone my mum because I, as I said, had only been in this graphic design job for 12 months and and so I phoned her and I said, oh, look, you know, I'm really thinking of pulling the pin on this. What are your thoughts? Oh, no, you can't, you can't do that, Emma. Like I love telling my friends that I have a daughter that's a graphic designer. Like it sounds good and that sits with my story that I like to tell the people and you've worked too hard for this and it will all just be a waste. And so, so it, was, it was sort of like this conflict of information that, and I, I can now see why fundamentally they would never work as as a couple because their ideas and thought processes and sometimes opposites attract. But I really felt that like they're just fundamentally so different with how they see see the world. So I took dad's advice as I always have and I um, got out of the graphic design and I ended up living in the Blue Mountains for a while and I enrolled at Sydney College of the Arts, which was part of Sydney Uni. And of course when I enrolled I said so I've had Newcastle Uni for a year and a half only halfway through my degree for the obvious reasons I've done graphic design and they said well look we can't really recognize any of your prior studies so you will need to start again (laughs) and I'm like wow okay I think it's just a money-making scheme. But anyway, I was happy to start again because, as I said, I think being that professional student sat well with me anyway. I quite liked it because there was a sense of probably not having to be responsible. Like being a a uni student, you're pretty free, and I really loved that. Maybe that was from my childhood where I felt I had to be responsible before I should have been having to feel responsible. Like I got that time of freedom. So loved it. Sydney Uni was my thing. My father at this point, mind you, he'd married a lady and that was really interesting and still is. And my mother had married somebody else, somebody new, somebody that she didn't really know too well that lived overseas. But, you know, this is 
happening in her life. And her son was, I guess, copying the brunt of that over those years because he did not sit with this stepfather very well. So my mum and her son had many, many years of really being absent in each other's world. Keeping in mind I did not grow up with my brother so or stepbrother or whatever you call them. <laughs> so I, the relationship with him has never been one of strength or, or anything. But, however, I always did look out for him knowing that, that you know, if anything ever went He's done it tough. wrong, like, you know, you've done it pretty tough. Like your dad was the man when I was in second class that used to beat me up if I didn't know my maths homework. So I, I don't know whether he does the same to you, but I am here as a person in your world. So moving on from... From that life, I finished my uni. I, uh, well, I came to Newcastle again. So I had the opportunity now at 30 to move back in with my mother because I just think that was probably the the more economical way to, to get in. And I was at an age where I wasn't at uni to make friends. I'm 30. I just want to do a one-year dip ed, become the teacher and just move on with my life. Really happy to go way out west and have the experience of go somewhere where you know nobody and see what that life could do for me. So I moved in with my mother and her her husband, who I really hadn't had the opportunity of, of living with. And the domestic violence wasn't there, but there was the emotional, financial, mental sort of abuse that I noticed. And again, like, didn't sit well. So there were moments of you know, unpleasant times. And she would tell me that she didn't love him. But, and I'd say to her, well, well, why don't, like, life is too short. Why, your happiness is worth so much more. Like, why are you, why are you here? Oh, because I'll lose everything if I don't stick with this person. And I think the connection at the beginning was the fact that she was attracted to this man who had built roads and was an engineer. So I think she felt that he was completely cashed up but in reality, he wasn't at all. So <laughs> I think for her first time ever of owning a home, thanks to him and her working together for that to happen. So she wasn't prepared for the first time in her life to give everything away because she had these material things which were super duper important to her. So I spent a year in that space and I came to Walka and did my first ever teaching prac and in a really roundabout way met my now husband. But I didn't meet him when I came here for my teaching prac, but I did meet his brother and his brother basically set us up and that's another story in itself. But Chris said to me, you know, if you ever need some teaching opportunities, Armadale has so many schools and, and you know, you're most welcome to come up this way and I've got a spare room and all the things. And, and so my life sort of, well, there's more to that, but but here I am. Completely different environment. Completely different completely environment. Completely different worlds and safety and belonging. And all of those things. And and a really nice guy that just is not showing me a lot like my own father, like showing me some really great qualities that aren't the violence, that are solutions to some problems, that are, you know, really just passive good listeners that are, you know, willing to take you on board for who you are and just be your rock. And I'm like, oh, this is this is cool. Like, this is great. So 
here we are. We're, we're living here. We're lovely home in Yarala, living my best life. If somebody had have said to me, you are going to marry a country guy and have three children, I would have gone, no, there's just no way in hell. That's not really, no, <laughs> not really for me. And where I'm going, I guess, with this story is that my mum's husband got quite ill and she was really counting down to the days that he would finally no longer be here because it was just too much hard work and she just wanted it all to be over and that day came and and I was quite thankful when it happened because for the first time in her life she is just a lady that look she's got a home that she was paying a mortgage on in Newcastle that she's you know connecting more with us I've got kids she was very happy to sort of be a part of all of that and and I offered the suggestion of maybe maybe when the time is right for you like why don't you get out of Newcastle become mortgage free come and live up our way and and we can actually maybe get the life that I don't feel that I grew up having with you and she'd always make these jokes of absolutely because never again will I ever have another man in my life and the next one that I have will have four legs and a wet nose and a tail because I am (laughs) just done and I'm like great So we secured a block of land and she had this fabulous house put on there and basically in our backyard and it was all fantastic and it really was for a year, maybe two years. So that was 2017 and 2018 rocked around and that was all fantastic and then 2019 appeared and she had a little job in town and the next thing there's Chris and I went to a concert in Newcastle and we've come home and the kids are saying, oh, yeah, so we... um." sitting in the car with this guy, one of Nana's friends, and, yeah, so he was just looking after us while Nana went in and got some some groceries. And I'm like, so who is this guy and why are you being left with him? And I have issues with that. And the argument began and it was from my mum's point of view, well, that's just ridiculous. Nothing happened. And, okay, nothing happened, but that's not the point to me. So, There was a few moments, I guess, where this man was very much all of a sudden living in her space, keeping his caravan in our backyard. And I'm like, what what is this? Is this a relationship? Like, do you know this person? (laughs) How does this happen? And I think admittedly it it reached the end when she realised that she's probably just gone in too hard, too fast, too soon, and no, it wasn't really a relationship. But, you know, I'm an adult, Emma, and I deserve to to have companions. And I've never denied her of that, obviously, because she has had a history of having her companions in whatever form that may be. I started to build a wall in my backyard because I thought, well, look, this is going to go one way or another. I have been the person that has been there for my mum and tried to protect her because I had this life of feeling a little bit sorry for her, feeling that this is what she has attracted and poor her, she doesn't deserve this. And I've only now started to realise that these things, I guess, are maybe more important to her than her own family or even her own self-worth. I think maybe married with a really low self-esteem that this is what she deserves and that maybe what she's comfortable with. So, yeah, we built a very green hedged wall that is killing me because it just blew over in a storm recently. (laughs) (laughs) But interestingly, and I could read it like a book, it was incredibly, I don't even know the word, distressing as it happened, but she actually sold up without a for sale sign 
left here with all of her belongings, no goodbyes, no prior warnings, and disappeared, um, which is so not okay. But I guess this is where my resilience more than ever now and the fact that I have the capacity as a more grown-up person to deal with this is that I am not going to create the life for my own children that I feel that I've had growing up. I'm so sorry, Em. Like that just, you know, as you said, the writing almost was on the wall, but it never makes it easier. You can know that and never makes those moments any easier when you're in them, you know. But you're right, this doesn't have to be your life. That doesn't have to be in your world. Not at all, not at all. And the thing that you do really have to put into perspective because I think, and there's no disrespect to the people that this happens to and and I've been part of it myself where you can choose in some ways, and I know this has become my mother's choice, it's poor her, poor her. I have managed to give her no other choice other than to leave. So I think you can be, for want of a better word, but a victim, which there is nothing wrong with that. However, I feel that you can also go another way in order to keep growing and moving forward. I mean, I can I can sit and I can feel so sorry for myself that all of this has played out the way it has because that was certainly far from the intentions that I had, which is you know, why I made all of these things possible, like for her to live here and we can look after her as she gets older and, and do all the things. But I just think that life has a funny way of presenting itself sometimes but you don't have to remain in that situation no and that's the lesson that we're hearing through and through with your stories you don't actually have to remain in that situation like that line is a consistent throughout your whole story yeah I'm just annoyed that it took me until my 40s to work it out (laughs) I also do you know what there's also a part of me that's like you should be able to remain in a situation because it's nice and loving and you want to be there and that's the part that really freaking sucks is that you've had to change your environment and your situation over and over and over again and reinvent yourself over and over and over again yeah and then when you sit back now and reflect on the last 40 years what is a message that you would have for your younger self or a message that perhaps you hold close to your heart now? I'm going to use some words from one of my favourite people, which is Tim Minchin, who I really, really love because I think something that I have learned and I can take away with me now is that idea that we as humans are essentially just made up of the basic elements found in the universe including carbon (laughs) and I'm telling myself now to choose my carbon choose my people choose the people that I can surround myself with that are there for me that are willing to hear the story and it's not always my story you know I don't go and tell the universe this all the time but I really feel that now (laughs) have now it's out there Ah! I'm I'm actually petrified of that thought so and this is my I guess maybe part of my closing statement but so while carbon isn't rubbish the excessive release of carbon in the form of waste or pollution or those people that are not really meant for you can be considered rubbish in terms of its negative impact that it may have had on this planet or my case it could be myself and I've just come to the realization that you know, we don't 
always have all the time in the world and I just don't have the time for that stuff because I've got so many more exciting and interesting things going on in my world that I think over the years that I have ruminated and and thought and changed who I am to be wherever I am at that time, um, no, I don't need to do that. Just look forward to to living out the, the next stages of my life, just being me, being me in my space and creating that that safe, comfortable place for my kids, not pretending to be somebody that we're not, hiding from things that we shouldn't have to. And, Em, if you were to think about a person or a couple of people in your world that have really stood out to you as safe people, who would they be? I cannot pinch myself enough to realise that I have married my best friend and Chris is an absolute rock in my world that really, I guess, reiterates this safe place. And he's come from a, an incredibly opposite upbringing to me. So it's this sense of showing me the ways of how things can be. And I have the utmost respect for him because he is there 24 seven. And with that, we also have our three kids and what a fantastic distraction they they can be. But I I absolutely love my family, my immediate family, yeah, my little people and my husband. And, look, I have a, a fabulous auntie and my dad. <laughs> so, so in all of this, my auntie Jenny, who I just think is a phone call away and who is just a person that offers me so much insight and advice and I just am so respectful for that because she's also a rock for me. And Em, you know I love to finish every episode. I know as a listener that every episode is what or who in your world makes you belly laugh. And the reason I ask this question is because we've all been on this journey with you, with this story that you're sharing today and where I don't want to speak for my listeners, but you know, I'm feeling like my heart feels open and I'm just like I just I just want to give you a cuddle, to be honest. I want to like sit down. It's your birthday. I want to like hug you with all of my soul. And this question at the end really helps us to kind of remind ourselves that laughter can soothe our souls and comedy within our life can actually lift those really challenging moments. Is there someone or something in your world that makes you belly laugh? Uh, Look, my husband makes me belly laugh. My kids make me belly laugh. My co-workers make me belly laugh. The students that I work with, which I'm so fortunate to have, also make me belly laugh. And I think it really is just having those shared experiences that is what helps to create the laughter and it's sometimes so spontaneous. And I'm a bit of a kid still at heart, so I think it's it's those situations, you know, when you know you're not meant to be laughing that makes you laugh even more. <laughs> I still yes. have that And I find myself in some serious situations where I don't even know how to control myself because all I want to do is do the laughter because I know it's probably not appropriate at that time. And and that still sits with me as a now (laughs) 40-plus-year-old. When you're not allowed to laugh, that's when I want to (laughs) laugh. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, Em, for coming on today and sharing your story on your birthday. I know this is the first time you've shared and... I am with you. I am beside you. I know we're we're one town away, but, you know, I'm sitting beside you for the rest of today because I just wholeheartedly, like you are a super awesome human and what you've been through to to get to where you are today is, is incredible and you've navigated some phenomenal challenge in your life and you just bring so much love, joy, laughter, inspiration, 
when you walk into a room, like to think of your story now after I've met you is like, I would never pick it. And that's the thing, right? That's the thing. We, we so often don't pick it in other people, but you walk in and you're this ball of energy. Well, Ali, I just have to say thank you so much for, for having me on and listening to your podcasts has also been just such an amazing cathartic experience in this whole process. And I just can't wait to keep keep on listening to all the stories of some really interesting people that you have spoken with. Thank you. There is really something special about challenges that change us. As Emma's story started to unfold throughout the last hour, I just felt so much love and support for her and for the experiences that she had, but also so much pride in the strength and wisdom that she brings to her life now as a woman and as someone that can look back and reflect on those experiences. And one thing I'm starting to notice over the last couple of years is that you as my listener seems to be more interested in just the everyday human story. Like, what is it that is the story that sits behind your neighbor, your cousin, the teacher of your kids, the guy working down at the tire shop, the person working on the front counter at McDonald's, the CEO, your boss, you know, like, what is the story that sits behind that human that has gotten them to where they are? And what is it that they've kind of drawn on over those years and how are they using that today? So I think, you know, as we move into this next 12 months, 10 years, 15 years, however long the podcast is going to go for, as we move into this next space, I'm going to try and bring alive those conversations and just opening this world up that each of us have a story. All of us do. You do. I do. And, you know, particularly, and you've heard me say this, we need to stop comparing ourselves to other people where they've come from, how they've gotten there, where they want to go, what's important to them. It is so different to where we are and what's important to us. So if you're out there today comparing yourself to someone else, looking over the fence and thinking their life looks fabulous or look how well they are, just remember that everyone has a story and everyone goes through all the colors of emotions and adversity throughout life and you're doing okay. You are doing okay and I want you just to give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back and just say, I'm I'm doing okay. All right, guys, I will see you all next week for our next episode. I hope you have a fabulous week. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 